0: Writers and readers need each other. They are, in a sense, interdependent. Sixty years ago, I made a conscious decision to become a writer. It's hardly any coincidence that, for much of my life, I became caught up in an organisation that celebrates reading. Read New Zealand, Te Pumurumura, is having its 50-year anniversary, and I'm proud to be part of this celebration, having, as Willow said, played a role in that enterprise, that vision, Te Aotea, shared by a group of booksellers and publishers. The New Zealand Book Council, as it was known then, was inspired by UNESCO's International Year of the Book in 1972. This panui is a salute to this organisation and what it's become, its power and its influence in the realms of literacy, And also its history and beginnings. The journey, if you like, that I have shared with Read New Zealand. So I've told my life story before, and there are several versions of it. (laughs) In the end, there can only be one true storyline. Inventing alternatives may work if a writer is making fictions, but not when one is committed to telling what really happened as nearly as possible. So here in bare bones is the essence of where my own reading habits began. I learned to read in a country hospital in the far north. At the end of World War II, my parents had bought land in Kirikiri. My Irish father, UK-born but Irish, was in the Air Force throughout the war, although his health had prevented him from seeing active service abroad so he didn't qualify for a rehab loan to buy a farm or set himself up for the future in other ways. My prudent Scots mother, herself of farming stock, saved up his pay and earned money of her own from milking on her parents' farm. There was enough for a deposit on the cheapest block of land they could find. My father bought it, sight unseen. In an early novel of mine called Mandarin Summer, the fictional me who becomes a girl called Emily, has this to say. It's nearly 35 years now since I first went north. I was with my mother and I was 11 years old. When we left the South, my grandmother and my aunts and uncles all came to the railway station and wept over me as if I was going to a far country. My grandmother wore black, presumably to suit the occasion. My mother wore her best clothes with a cherry-red pudding-bowl hat over her short cropped growing hair as if to say well it's going to be all right it's going to be fun up there amongst the orchards and hibiscus the pakistans and tea on the lawn except that in real life i was actually only 6 and but that's how it was just as the fictional narrator describes the scene and it was actually hard for most of the years that the real life family was up north the Pakurisabs were British Raj people who'd escaped the Sino-Soviet conflict in the 1930s and set up camp in Kerikeri, planting citrus orchards. Most of them had a view of themselves as apart, as apart from the rest of us. I'm sorry if there are any descendants here, but that's how it felt at the time. My parents arrived and worked as servants. The land my father bought was barren and difficult to cultivate. The property was at the end of Darwin Road, back then a dusty gravel track. We lived in an army hut for seven years until relief appeared from my father's relatives in Ireland in the shape of an inheritance, which gave us a happy escape to the farm we later owned in Waipu. Now, if I've made this all sound a bit too desperate, I should say that my parents were thoughtful people with cultivated backgrounds. We mightn't have had a car to get around, but we'd inherited the family silver and good Irish linen on our plain deal table, and there was nourishing food on that table, much of it gathered through my parents' endeavours to live off the land. Although my mother was an outwardly shy woman, in private she was a storyteller who engaged me in storytelling games. I was read to at night, and the hut overflowed in its corners with sixpenny orange and green penguin paperbacks, and my father was strict about how I spoke the king's English. All of this shifting from one place to another meant I didn't start school until around my sixth birthday. We'll do our best to get her up to speed, the teacher said grimly, or words to that effect. Shortly after this, I fell ill and was admitted to Kawakawa Hospital, some 40 kilometres away. I'd stayed there for several weeks, or was it months? It was a long time, I do know that. As my parents had no vehicle except their bicycles and there was no bus between the towns, I wouldn't see them again until I was allowed back home. Well, after a week or so in hospital, a visiting teacher called Miss Brown came to see me. When I told her I was sick, she said well, of course, you'll be able to read. Her face fell when I said that, no, I hadn't learned yet. Well, she said, I'll have to teach you this afternoon. (laughs) And that's what she did. Although I didn't realise that it took more lessons than one to learn to read, I was now able to make my way to the musty little hospital library at the end of a corridor and find myself some books. Those I found were old and worn, but they were full of wonderful words and stories. So this sounds a bit precious, but it happens to be true because I didn't know any better. One of the first books I read for myself was Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare. (laughs) The sex had been deleted, but passionate emotion, sorrow and colourful battle references remained, not to mention comedy. The laughter, oh, there was that. And I remember the joy of discovering the errors and pratfalls of A Midsummer Night's Dream and the way Pyramus and Thisbe at the Wall play tragedy against comedy. So when I returned to school, I'd become a storyteller, able to entertain classmates all older than me. I had been mysteriously promoted to Standard 2. And I'd also learned to write. Miss Brown helped me write letters home. And in the end... A pitiful missive, demanding that I be allowed to leave hospital, had found its mark, and I was returned to my parents. I could see it. Writing worked. (laughs) If, If this makes me sound like some child prodigy, it's not the image I want to project. I'm a person who's been given the gift of language, and clearly, back then, its time had come in my life. What I do know is that before we went north, as an only child on my grandparents' farm, I had been surrounded by language and engaged in conversations with adults from a very young age. There was an expectation that I would respond and verbalise in the same way that they did. Later, there didn't seem anything extraordinary about learning to unlock text. I, I never understood that it might be hard to learn how to read and I'm grateful for that. Soon after leaving hospital, the power lines were installed along Darwin Road, bringing electricity to our house. One of my poems, called Electricity, begins like this. In all the marvellous lights of the world, we were able to read books. Before electricity was fed along our road, we read by candlelight or a kerosene lantern, those flickering fires turning words into unsteady little crickets that chirruped across the pages and followed us to bed to keep us awake. When the power board came and brought the lines past our gate, we could snap a cord from the ceiling as the bulb showered us with steady yellow light, a trifle dull, perhaps, but still it was easier to decipher the script, the secrets of the characters on the page. For all that I would read and read and read, for a variety of reasons, not least a district high school that only went up to the fifth form, I left school when I was 15, never to return. Apart from some lifelong friendships, the main thing I took away was an enduring love of Irish poetry, thanks to a young red-headed Irish teacher called Eileen O'Shea, later Larkin. Yeats's words, tread softly because you tread on my dreams, stirred something inexplicable in me. I had dreams, but they were still ill-defined, nebulous, something that I can only describe as longing. That love of the Irish poets would translate later into a broad love of Irish literature. Back then, I had a life to lead. I needed to be grown up and to dance nights aways rock and roll, listen to Elvis, and to party in an era when disapproval of such behaviour was rife in Aotearoa. As it turned out, it was an era that decades later would provide rich material for writing. In particular, it would illuminate my understanding of the circumstances surrounding the life and death of a young Irishman called Albert Black. This 20-year-old immigrant was hanged on a charge of murder the week before I left school. It would take me another 60 years to articulate my despair and disgust with the death penalty. In my novel, This Mortal Boy, I argue that the charge should have been manslaughter. But I had lived through Albert's times and I could see how the moral climate of them influenced the outcome. So... If I was a minor part of the rebellion of the 1950s, it wasn't doing me much good in terms of realising dreams. i drifted through a number of lacklustre jobs by the time I was 17. Um, but a waitressing, spare parts hand in a Ferguson tractor garage, etc., etc. In Rotorua, where my fa- family had now settled, a small miracle occurred. A job came up at the local library. At my father's insistence, I applied for and got it. And suddenly things began to fall into place. The head librarian was a woman called Kit Spencer, later right after she married the widowed town clerk. Kit was already a legend in library circles. She was beautiful, her misty blue-tinted hair caught in a chignon, a divorcee, an early feminist the first woman fellow of the New Zealand Library Association and a woman with pure steel at her core. Her girls, we young women who worked for her, had to measure up, look after the borrowers, be well-groomed and do as we were told. But Kit was a woman who changed my life. She became my mentor and my guardian angel. She saw something in me, giving me responsibility and a sense of pride in myself. Surrounded every moment of every working day by thousands of books, I'd never been happier. Kit directed me towards the great storytellers of the late 19th and 20th century, like Chekhov and Tolstoy. They fed my passion for family drama. She also, at Kit's... um, Behest, I'd also started to read some of the earlier femi- French feminist writers, Colette, Simone de Beauvoir, Marguerite Duras, leading the foundations, laying the foundations for interests that have been lifelong and influential in my own approach to writing, and perhaps to life itself. I read contemporary fiction too, the Americans Elizabeth Hardwick and Jack Kerouac and British writer Graham Greene. I have, of course, borrowed from his epic masterpiece, The Heart of the Matter, for the title of this paanui. Sadly, there were no New Zealand writers. They were yet to come, or if they were there, they were very few and far between. My ferocious reading habits had returned. Soon I was advising the locals on what to read. As well as more serious reading, I loved collecting up piles of romances for older borrowers or terrifying thrillers for the young fire-watching men who descended from the treetops in the nearby Rotary forests to grab reading material. The older women, we called them our old ladies, though I figure that most of them were younger than I am now, would reward us with cakes and lollies. By the time I was 19, I was the deputy librarian. In Kit's absences during illness, I took over and ran that library and its staff and managed book purchases from the local booksellers. And it was in that library that I met my husband Ian Kidman, the school teacher to whom I was married for 57 years until his death in 2017. The old ladies brought me crocheted doilies for wedding gifts, and I've got some of them still. Ian was of Ngati Poto and Ngati Rakawa descent we had a daughter and a son six grandchildren and as at current count six great-grandchildren towards the end of my library career which had shifted to the local boys high school library where ian taught i had the task of refurbishing an entire library enabled by generous grants from a wealthy school board i was not only in charge of a library but also overseeing large-scale book purchasing plus organising events to engage teenage boys in projects that would interest them in reading. Two published writers in the English department, one a novelist, helped develop these programmes. I had a great time. It was only six years since I'd left school myself, and I was busy imagining what I might have enjoyed when I was still in the classroom. Book displays of hobbies, student choices, activities, we did all of those. I left when I was expe- expecting my first child because, as the principal said, it wouldn't have do to have me wandering around pregnant in a boy's school, especially as my husband was teaching there. I suppose Ian was evidence of unbridled lust in the bedroom. <laughs> I've, ne- <laughs> I've never quite worked that out. But I know, do know it was suggested I spend the following months knitting booties. What I actually did was write a play, inspired by a dramatisation I heard on the radio of Nelskin's Caro series about rural life in New Zealand and the lives of country women. The year was 1962. By the time of my daughter's birth in early 1963, I had decided to commit my life to writing, something I have never resiled from. And when I look back... It seems to me that these two acts of what I might call ferocious creativity in my life were intrinsically linked to my life as a woman writer. There are jumps in this narrative. Some ten years would pass. There was a move to Wellington. There was getting taken up by people in broadcasting who gave me work as a dramatist for radio theatre. Then a prize, the Naya Marsh Award for Television Writing. So, I actually had two Naya Marsh Awards in different genres, but just about 50 years apart. Um, also, that magic 50 years. But it brought with it the means that and the, the means to support life as both a writer and also part of a family that was hard up and needed income to renovate an old house on a Hatai Hillside. I was looking for more regular work. I answered an ad in the Situation's Vacant column for the job of First Secretary Organiser of the New Zealand Book Council or, as we know it these days, Read New Zealand Te Pūmuramura The interview took place in a bookshop, Parsons Books on Lambton Quay. I was interviewed by Roy Parsons. I've described him elsewhere as a shrewd little man with a pointed goatee beard his head constantly wreathed in cigarette smoke, an Englishman who had emigrated some years earlier and founded a left-wing bookshop. Roy explained the organisation to me. Under the general umbrella of the New Zealand book trade, an organisation drawn from the National Booksellers and Publishers' Associations, the Book Council was honouring International Book Year. Its purpose was to link booksellers, publishers, writers, educators and librarians to discuss and act upon book-related issues of common interest. The Council planned to reach disadvantaged readers through its activities as well as pursuing the more commercial strand of increasing interest in books to attract higher sales. It had already been decided by the Book Trade Board that a project called Operation Book Flood would be initiated. The aim was to see how children in low-decile schools would respond to a large-scale injection of books into the school. An academic study to analyse the results had been commissioned. This was undertaken by Dr Ely under the aegis of the New Zealand Council for Educational Research. Roy asked me to comment on these aims and ambitions. I wondered aloud if it might be worth inviting writers to go and talk to school kids about writing. Call it writers in schools, I suggested. Roy nodded vigorously. I'm going to recommend you get this job, he said. And there it was. The chairman of the board was the distinguished historian Keith Sinclair, later Sir Keith. Others on the board included Dr Clarence Beebe, Patrick McCaskill, John Watson and David Wiley. There was one woman, just one, Janet McConey from Auckland. Keith Sinclair exuded a nervous, twitchy energy, always seemingly balancing on the balls of his feet. He had a mane of bushy grey hair and prominent intensely brown eyes that glistened over bottles of red wine, and there were a fair few of those at the Woolshed restaurant, a watering hole just off Plymouth Steps. At these gatherings, there were long, intense discussions about history, education and the way the Book Council should be run. These conversations were often observed by men who'd taken off their fawn-belted raincoats and seated themselves at nearby tables. Yes, secret service men really did wear raincoats like that back then. (laughs) You might well ask why they were there, well, at the time, Keith was researching and writing his biography of Walter Nash and had been given access to a large number of classified documents. I suppose it was a concern that he might be passing them on. At any rate, it was kind of thrilling to have a job that entailed being followed by spies. <laughs> Writers in schools got underway. The novelist Noel Hilliard, author of the controversial novel Mara Girl, was the first writer to tour. He went to Rotorua and spoke at three high schools. Other writers followed to different parts of the country. Margaret Mahi and Joy Carley were early touring writers. And here I'd like to pause for a moment and pay tribute to Jean Needham, who followed me as the second secretary organiser and later broadened the programme's scope developing it into a shape that laid the foundation for its long-term future, one that continues today. And here, since I first wrote this, and just last month, I need to sadly note the passing of Jean last month. Operation Book Flood had begun, and somewhere tucked away there were results of that survey – It pleases me immensely that Read New Zealand continues to investigate and publish the results of national reading surveys. Sometimes these contemporary reports of declining reading habits make uncomfortable reading, but they provide a vital framework for the encouragement of people at every level, not just children and young adults or any one particular group of society, but a broad spectrum of potential readers. Lest you think it was all rosy from the start, there was much to learn. I was a novice bookkeeper, and Roy used to shake his head in despair over my efforts, usually taking up the reins and doing it for me in the first year or so. And well he might. Somebody had to keep check on where the money went. On one inauspicious occasion, I nearly sank the book council with one fell blow the booksellers and publishers wanted to compile a leaflet of well-known New Zealanders' favourite books. This was a lovely job. I met lots of famous people with the pretext of getting their lists. When it was all ready, I had it printed in a beautiful, glossy and very large brochure. The printing costs were nearly as much as my annual salary. Alas, the trade people wrung their hands in horror. None of the books were current, none of them in print. (laughs) As an anticipated marking tool, they were useless. (laughs) So after some grumbling, it was decided to keep the fledgling book council going and give it and me another year to see if it would all work out. This dual role of marketing, alongside the encouragement of literacy and reading habits, was an uneasy mix. On a happier note, the Book Council ran a seminar called The Changing Shape of Books. This topic was addressed by a number of literary luminaries who tried to second-guess what books would look like in years to come. None of us present then could have imagined the book in all its manifestations of the technological age. We couldn't have imagined, for instance, e-books and Kindles, the very idea that people could summon up books on their phones wherever they were on their phones weren't phones things that were tied to a wall at home it was the mid 1990s or thereabouts I had long left the book council and was now the author of several books myself including some novels the first book was a highly forgettable collection of poems called Honey and Bitters please don't ever go looking it out Launched jointly with In Middle Air, poems by my friend Loris Edmond. The chair of the Book Council Board was Dr Robin Williams. When he retired, he approached me to see if I would take on the role. I did, he amiably pointed out, know how things worked, given that I'd set up some of the programmes that were still running 20 years later, writers in schools, meet the author and so on. I said yes, and with this agreement came the opportunity to start more programs that I'd had tucked away in the back of my mind for a long while. I want to tell you briefly about Writers Visiting Prisons and Words on Wheels, both programs that I was passionate about and that became part of my own personal journey. At the time I became chair, I was also facilitating creative writing groups for the Centre for Continuing Education at Victoria University. I got a call one day to ask if I would accept a prisoner out on day release from Remitaka Prison for the Centre's summer school programme. The late Bill Payne's story is widely known, and no confidence is broken in revisiting it. A tall, good-looking man with black hair and a long, closely shaven, dark chin, he and I struck up an instant rapport. He was on a strict promise to return to the prison of his own volition at the end of each day. From the beginning, I believed him a writer. After summer school ended, we continued to correspond. Before long, he was released from prison. He'd had the manuscript of a short story collection ready to show me, and very soon, poor behaviour found a publisher, and his career was launched. Staunch inside New Zealand's gangs followed to considerable acclaim. Soon he was a regular writer for Shortland Street and a filmmaker. Meanwhile, more prisoners arrived at the classes, not all of them on quite such free reign. I remember one woman came attached by an ankle strap to a male guard. People thought they were a couple. They moved in such close harmony with each other. (laughs) Although, sadly, the guard was not quite as absorbed in the writing course as his charge was, and I felt it was demeaning, and I wasn't happy about the situation. All of this got me thinking. There was a clear hunger for these courses, but access was difficult for many. Why not take writers to the prisons? So, I took this idea to the Book Council Board, and it was accepted. We called this programme Writers in Prisons. Bill was one of the numerous writers who visited the first ex-prisoner to be allowed back into a New Zealand prison after release when he visited Parimarum in Medium Security as a writer. I was shaken to my core when I heard Ben Brown's 2020 Parnui as he described the lives of men who had lost their way or been lost by social circumstance. It brought me closer to the people I thought I had known in earlier years, but perhaps never understood as profoundly as Ben spoke of them. At least through Bill Payne, I'd had some idea. I can only say how heartened I am that Reed New Zealand runs the Writers and Youth Justice Program and to know of Ben's role in it. A light-hearted footnote to the Bill Payne story. I mentioned he was quite nice to easy on the eye. Well, after his release, he was a centrefold for a well-known magazine, <laughs> bearing everything but all. But the fact is, Bill was a catalyst for change in prisons and for life after prison. He also toured with Words on Wheels, the other program I want to talk about. It began after I attended the Melbourne Writers' Festival. The guest speaker at the festival dinner was an Australian publisher called Laurie Mueller. He spoke of writers' tours being taken into the outback by train. He'd recently been on one of these journeys, joining a train ride into the desert with nine Australian writers, I knew the art back a little, having once travelled by train across the Nullarbor Plain, following the route that my mother had taken when she left New Zealand for a couple of years and went to Western Australia to meet up with my wanderlust father and get married there. They decided to come back to New Zealand um, in time for my birth. Uh, So so close, so nearly close, was I an Australian. (laughs) So he'd recently been on one of these journeys, joining a train ride into the desert with nine Australian writers, and perhaps I've said that, sorry. I remember the tiny ramshackle towns dotted here and there across that vast red landscape. Laurie described the train crossing as a long stretch of desert without any sense of sign of habitation, Then two dots appeared on the horizon, which as the train drew closer, those on board could see to be a mother and small child. The little girl held a bunch of desert wildflowers in her hand. The train slowed down and stopped. The writers got out and formed a circle around the pier while each read a story. When they'd finished, the child handed over her flowers, the writers climbed back on board and the train moved away mother and daughter waving, until eventually they all lost sight of each other. And I found myself crying when I heard this story, about the power of the written word, about the connection between writers, spoken words and readers. And I thought to myself, we may not have the rolling stock or enough train tracks to do this in New Zealand, but we have small buses, and there's no reason why we can't take words and books to every corner of New Zealand. Again, the board obliged. The first tour left Wellington Civic Square in 1993 amidst a sea of balloons and streamers. Like the Australians, the touring group wore straw hats so that when they arrived in town, people would recognise them and say, oh, the writers are here. (laughs) The bus was driven by Chris Pugsley, a military historian, and he continued to lead several tours that followed. David Hill, the children's writer, was among those on the bus, as were the novelists Fiona Farrell and apirona Taylor, poet Michael Harlow, and the inimitable playwright Rene, who brought you the 2021 panui. Um, it gives me a great good feeling to know that Several of those writers are still taking part in, in Read New Zealand events and particularly in writers and schools. The many tours that followed fulfilled our wildest dreams. We'd vowed at the outset that we would take writers, books and reading from North Cape to Bluff, from East to West. We would find libraries, schools, community spaces and, if necessary, sit on the side of the road to talk to people. We did all of those. Everything. So there's now book festivals throughout the regions that perhaps fulfil the need for the tours. But I like to think that our travelling troubadours sowed the seeds for what was to come. But anyway, after I'd stood down as chair of the book council, I went on one of the buses myself as a touring writer. And one of my enduring memories is of the dark of a librarian standing alone on a street as we left town in the early morning waving her hat and calling, Come back, come back to us soon. No doubt there is nostalgia in all I've told you this evening. Yet in considering 50 years of Te operation, I think it useful to look back at some of our founding principles and see where we have come from. Today's programmes have changed and evolved, but I believe the principles and passions that gave birth to our organisation are essentially the same. The love of reading and the belief that it changes lives holds as true as it ever did. For myself, I continue to be bitten to my heart's core by a good book, finding within its covers passion, laughter and fear, memory of time past, appreciation of the present with all its disturbances and all its joys and anticipation of the future. What is there not to love about a book? I tell fortunate people I've had a fortunate life and some people are kind enough to suggest that we make our own luck, that it was all down to me. But that wasn't the case. I've had mentors and guiding influences for whom I'm internally grateful. Over the years I've been involved with a number of groups on a voluntary basis, in particular the Randall Cottage Writers' Trust, which is currently celebrating its 20 successful years of writers' residencies in their cottage on St Mary's Street. And I've been a member of the New Zealand Society of Authors for as long as I've been a member of Te Pumurumurra. Through the Society, I continue to advocate at a political level for those things I believe in, like the government-funded public lending rights scheme, which remunerates writers' for the free use of their books in libraries every year, although not, at the moment, the free use of our e-books or the use of books by children's writers in school libraries, scandals that escape the public's notice all too often. Writers cannot provide books if they're not paid for the work, if they do not have standing as professionals in their own right. But a part of my heart has always been committed to the New Zealand Book Council Read New Zealand, te pū mara and so it will always be, in the same way that the power and the beauty of the book and the written word will never fail to entrance me. So, a farewell poem for the evening. It's called Like Everyone Who Likes to Read Books. So, like everyone who likes to read books, I wanted to work in a bookshop to be close to the heart of the matter All those outward spines hiding romance and blood-curdling terror and chilling moments. I wanted to stay at home and be on the road all at once, between the cover's leaf after falling leaf. Of words I wanted to know what they told me the minute the author had written them down. Their newness a prize, but how could I release them? Into the hands of others. That's what librarians do, and for time, that is what I did. Instead, standing at the library counter, giving the books over, taking them back, until I found my own words and wrote them down. Thank you.